Welcome to the Real Clear Politics Takeaway for Friday, October 28th. I'm Andrew Walworth. With the election now less than two weeks away, the map is trending red and some Democrats are already singing the blues. We'll look at the latest Real Clear projection for the House and Senate and ask whether anything can change the trajectory of what is looking more and more like a good midterm for the Republicans. We'll also look at this week's debate in Pennsylvania, where John Fetterman and Mehmet Oz squared off. Some think it was a mistake for Fetterman to take the stage, and we'll talk about why the number of debates in close races is going down, and whether that is good or bad for democracy. And we'll look at the elusive yet always fascinating youth vote. A new poll says we are about to see a Gen Z wave at the ballot box, with voter participation among those under 30 cresting at a new high. But will they really show up? And if so, what impact will it have on the final results? Joining me to talk about all this are Tom Bevin, co-founder and president of Real Clear Politics, Washington Bureau Chief Carl Cannon, and Josh Kroshauer, senior political correspondent for the website Axios. So, Tom, as I said, less than two weeks to go until November 8th. What are the real clear projections for the midterms at this point? And has anything changed since we last talked about this uh, about a week ago? The evidence, the data continues to show that it's going to be a good night for Republicans. We're going to have another round of polls coming in next week and we'll see what it says. But uh, it seems as if Republicans are winning, you know, late breaking undecideds. Some Republicans are coming home in some of these races. And so it looks like it's going to be a good night for Republicans. The question is, how good will it be? Our current projections show Republicans picking up 30 seats in the House and three seats in the Senate and three governorships. So that would be a pretty strong, uh, strong night for for the Republican Party. But again, we'll see. I mean, we got some we got some polls last night from The New York Times and some of these House races that were pretty good for Democrats, uh, better than I think a lot of people expected. So you know, and we, and we had a couple of generic ballot polls early in the week. One was a registered voter poll, which is not so great, but one was a likely voter poll, and, and they showed a swing toward the Democrats. Now that's that's at odds with you know the majority of, of the data, but nevertheless, I mean, Democrats can point to some some data points and say, "Hey, we're still in this, and this isn't as bad as as um, you know some folks are saying." But that's where we stand right now with our projections. Well, Josh, the Democrats still lead. Uh, Senate races in Pennsylvania and Arizona in the Real Clear average. It's very close in Georgia. I noticed that Walker now has a slight lead there. Um, what do you think? Are the results pretty much baked in at this point, or is it still anybody's ball? I wouldn't say baked in, and I'm religiously refreshing the RCP homepage these days to, to look at all the, all the latest polling. You know, I think big picture for the Senate, it's really going to come down to Pennsylvania, Nevada, and Georgia, and whichever party gets two of those three. Is, is the one that has the majority come election night. I also like to look at w- where the parties are spending money. They usually spend money based on what their internal data is suggesting. And what we're seeing in the final couple weeks is that Republicans are spending over $30 million in House districts where Biden won by 10 points or more, double-digit Biden seats. And that's reflected, I think, in Tom's list of the, the, the House race battlegrounds. These are not your typical battlegrounds. We're talking about races in Oregon, Connecticut, Rhode Island. Um, To me, that's as significant as the public polling data. And a lot of times you'll see some mixed signals from from the public polling late in the game. But both talking to Democrats and Republicans on the ground and also looking at that money being spent, Republicans and Democrats alike are betting that 
Republicans have made major inroads in some blue parts of the country. So to me, that that seems to signal that it's, as Tom was saying, this is much more likely to be a very good night for the Republican Party. So, Josh, wh- where where are you if you were to project the election were held tomorrow? What do you what do you see? I think a conservative estimate would be at least 20 House seats um, for the Republicans. That would give Republicans more seats than Newt Gingrich had after the 94 uh, Republican Revolution. If it was a historic, if it was a Category 4, Category 5 type of wave, to to pull my meteorological metaphors, uh, that would be a 30 seat, 25, 30 or more seats. I, I think 20 to 25 is is more of a safe range to, to look at right now. But every Republican and Democrat I talk to are worried that the higher end of the estimates are, are going to end up transpiring on election night. You know, for the Senate races, I, I still am Candidates matter a little more in these Senate races, and Republicans have had to deal with candidates that are underperforming where Republicans should be in Georgia, Arizona, New Hampshire. But what we're seeing in the final, and you're polling, you know, New Hampshire, for gosh sakes, uh, Republicans were sort of conceding New Hampshire, stopped spending money in that New Hampshire Senate race. And then they saw some of the polling that you've reported on, Tom, showing that that's a, a very close race to the, to the very end. So, you know, again, if we have a big, big wave, it doesn't, you don't need to be an A-list candidate to win in that type of scenario. So, you know, I think Republicans have an advantage in, in getting to 51, 51 Senate seats to getting the one Senate seat they need to get the majority back. Uh, the question is, can they win in these states where they haven't nominated the strongest Republican candidates? So Carl uh, Cook, political report, changed its House forecast this uh, week of GOP gain of 10 to 20 seats to a pickup of 12 to 25 seats. So they're trending in that direction. Uh, what say you? They're noticing the trend that Tom talked about, which is the generic congressional ballot. You know, the, the polling in these House races is hard to come by. Some in some House races, there's no independent polling at all. Some of it, it's the it's the campaigns, and the campaigns have various strategies. But you know, I'm 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 looking at this more carefully than I have before, be, partly because Real Clear Politics we're um, in the process of unveiling a a grading system of pollsters. But if you look at the 2022 generic congressional vote, Tom alluded to this. So uh, the Politico Morning Consult poll uh, in the field from October 21st to October 23rd, registered voters plus five Democrats in the congressional ballot. Rasmussen reports, uh, which went into the field the same day that that other poll ended, so not much time for much difference among the electorate, October 23rd to October 27th, has the congressional ballot at plus seven Republicans. These are the generic ballots. It's a generic ballot. And that's asking people, you don't mention anybody's congressperson. And the reason is that Americans historically would say that they love their own member of Congress, but they hate Congress. So this is one way to sort of factor that out and to see what's going on in a macro level. But that's a swing of 12 points. Well, both those polls can't be right. They may both be wrong, but they can't both be right. But if it's plus seven Republicans, you're on the outside edge of that number that the Cook Report, that's Dave Wasserman who puts that out. Or, uh, and even what Josh, I mean, if it's plus seven, yeah, you're looking at 30 seats. If it's plus Democrats five, well, hell, if that's really the number, Pelosi may keep the gavel. So we don't really know what's going to happen, which is why we run these races. And hopefully Tom will ask me about the World Series and I'll, I'll remind people that's why we play the games. And it's why, it's why real clear, we average it. Our average is... In the generic congressional ballot, you're going to vote for Republican or Democrat is 2.5 plus Republicans. That's a good number for Republicans. If that number is true, Republicans will take the House. Because, I mean, it's important to point out, it's, it's you know, we have 12 polls 
in our generic congressional ballot average. Ten of them show Republicans with a lead. Only two show Democrats with a lead. So I think the balance of evidence suggests that, that yeah, it's going to be a Republican night. And then the question is, how big is it going to be? Uh, I will add one thing that makes this election a little more interesting or even confusing is that we're, we're reporting at Axios that Democrats and Republicans are, are, are really worried about some of the bluest states like Oregon, New York, California, uh, where they're getting polls that show uh, Democrats in serious trouble. But in some of the traditional battlegrounds and some of the polls that we've seen in these Senate battlegrounds that that uh, everyone's on top of, the, these are neck and neck races. These are very close races. So there is something of a you, know, you have two different storylines where you and this happens a lot in a wave election where you're pouring money into the biggest races and it's neck and neck till the very end. And then maybe you see a break at the very end towards one one party. Uh, but when you see these surprising results, these unlikely uh, races that usually are not at the, the center of the, the political radar screen, that does tell you that there's a like, b- bigger likelihood that it's going to go more in the, in the Republican direction. It's going to go more against the party in power. And Tom, does the early voting tell us anything at this point? Because I think 15 million people have voted so far. It's some, some enormous number. We know a lot of people are early voting, um, but that's about all we know. And I caution people, do not pay attention. Everybody tries to read the tea leaves on you know, what that means for, you know, Democrats will say it's great news for them. Republicans will say, yeah, it's, it's, it's good news for us. I stay away from all that stuff because you really can't tell a lot about the early vote and what it ultimately means on election day. Tom, too bad you didn't tell that to Donald Trump in 2020. He wouldn't have come maybe unglued over the <laughs> over the results if he had known that these early votes trend Democrat and they get counted last and the day of votes don't tell you everything you need to know. Would have been helpful information. Tom, you could have saved the country a lot of trauma. I don't think Donald Trump's listening to me about anything. Um <laughs> But you go back, go back to this this idea of this, you know, wave. And people who follow election, Josh knows this, Carl knows this. You see it every year, every cycle. You've got this bucket of races that are really, really competitive in the House and the Senate. And you've got you know four or five Senate seats and let's say twenty five or thirty House seats that are literally toss ups. The voters are going to break in one direction. It's not like they're going to split evenly. It's a you know so well we don't know why that, but that's true. The swing voters break the same way wherever they live. Right. If voters are trending Republican, Republicans are going to win the vast majority. Not all of them. And there will be some Democrats that survive, as there are every year. But of those 25 House races, you know, Democrats are going to lose, you know, 20 or 18. And in the Senate, you know, you look at these four competitive Senate races that we have, Georgia, uh, Arizona, Nevada and New Hampshire. And we currently see, you know, Maggie Hassan surviving in New Hampshire, but the other three ones going to Republicans. And so it's not like we're going to have equal distribution of, of these races and Democrats are going to win some of these swing districts and Republicans are going to win an, an equal amount. Um, somebody's going to have a good night. And if Democrats are the ones who overperform expectations and and have a good night, then yeah, they're going to keep their losses in the House down. I think they're still going to lose the House because the numbers are just so daunting. But they might be able to you know keep the Senate uh, at 50-50, maybe, if they have a good night and they win a bunch of these close races. But well, again, that's why they play the game. Josh, I'm going to move on to Pennsylvania here. And uh, you wrote about it this week, particularly the debate. You talked about how you think voter isolation is growing uh, as candidates forego mainstream media. One thing you pointed to was the decline in the number of debates in close Senate races. We can talk about Fetterman's performance. But what struck me was the number of Democrats are saying he shouldn't have debated at all. That was a sort of a tactical or strategic <laughs> error. Um, what do you make of that? And is that a good thing? I mean, 
are debates now not sort of just a required part of the political process in America anymore? All, all, all the, all the storylines you just talked about really reflect how partisan we are as a country and how tribal we are and how we're in our own information bubbles. You know, I, I look at actually the Pennsylvania race and the Georgia race in, in, in similar ways. And, you know, frankly, if this was, if, if Herschel Walker had the issues with the pain for his ex-girlfriend's abortion, the allegations of domestic abuse, the, those are the types of allegations that a decade ago probably would have uh, made him unelectable as a candidate, no matter what state he was running in. You know, what we're seeing in Georgia is, you know, maybe he took a little bit of a hit initially, but people want are voting for the team jerseys. They're voting for red versus blue. They don't care about who the candidate is. They just want Republicans or Democrats uh, to take back the Senate majority. And you're seeing, you know, we haven't seen a whole lot of polling post-debate in Pennsylvania. And I expect to see a similar dynamic where, look, that was an, a really poor debate. I mean, Fetterman was trying to, his campaign was trying to hide the severity of his health issues and they couldn't when he was on stage for 60 minutes. And a lot of people for the first time saw the limitations uh, that he's had since that, that, that very serious stroke he suffered over the spring. Now, I think there are a lot of Democrats that privately would acknowledge that they're worried about whether he can serve effectively in the United States Senate, but they don't want Republicans to have the Senate majority. They don't want to give Mitch McConnell the gavel. So, you know, they're, they're going to be you know, a small number of, of swing voters that probably will move away from Fetterman, but it's not going to be dramatic. It's the people are voting not based on candidate quality. They're not looking at the debates. They're not paying attention to the individual merits of, of, of these candidates. It's, it's mostly red versus blue these days. And that means that any scandal, any controversy, any health issue, people are going to revert. They're, they're going to try to figure out any way to downplay that, those problems, because they want to stick up for team red or team blue. Let me, let me respond to that. Cause I, I take Josh's point, but we can, we can overstate that point too. Um, you know, in Pennsylvania, the Senate race is neck and neck, but the gubernatorial race isn't. You know, there are still discerning voters out there. You know, Josh Shapiro is going to win. He's the Democrat. Uh, he's running against Doug Mastriano, who's very Trumpy and has added to his repertory. He, he seemed to slur Josh Shapiro for being Jewish this week. I don't know why anybody thinks that's a winning strategy. He said he's a secular Jew at best or some words like that, which... I didn't even know what he was driving at. And you have two of the most liberal states in the country, Massachusetts and Maryland, still have Republican governors. So I, <laughs> for five more minutes, you're, you're yeah, <laughs> well, okay. Well, but they're not. But nobody's voting against them. They're retiring. You, you made two points, Josh. One is that we're tribal. The other, candidates matter, and I think they're both right. But in a close election, I think candidates. I think that's what determines it. You, you got Herschel Walker is there. He's running as an absolute pro-lifer. He's paid the allegation he's paid for one and maybe two abortions and then lied about it. Which he's denied just for the record, but go ahead. Well, let, let Josh respond here. Yeah. So Carl, you make a good point, but I, I would make a distinction between governor's races and congressional races. In, in the battle for the Senate, you're voting for a party holding the majority. And, and, and I think, and I, I actually think people these days hold the Senate and the House in such low regard that they actually just like, they don't care who's right. They actually do care who's running their state, right? They can still, like, they'll vote for Glenn Youngkin because they think he's a better steward of, of the state. They'll vote for, in Oregon, we've got a race that Republicans are, are looking to do pretty well in um, because they know the problems of the state are so severe. I should have put a caveat, like, this is a more of a congressional dynamic. Even governor's races are more, more nationalized these days, but the, the governor's races are sort of the last respite 
of sanity <laughs> where people actually do judge, <laughs> okay. judge more on the candidates. But it's these congressional, especially these Senate races now where people put on their jerseys. They, and, and there's a reason to because, you know, ultimately it does matter who is majority leader. It does matter who's in charge. All right. OK, good. All right. My turn. First, one, one of the most fascinating aspects of this election is are there going to be split ticket voters or, how, you know, how is Brian Kemp going to win by eight, nine, ten points? And, you know, Republicans who vote for Brian Kemp are going to what? Vote for Warnock? They're just going to leave it blank? I mean, what what's going to happen there? Uh, you know, you've got that same dynamic in Pennsylvania. You've got it in Wisconsin. You've got it all over the place, right? And split ticket voting is on the decline. And and we saw in 2016, it was the first time in American history at the presidential level, every every state that voted one way for president voted the same way for for the Senate, there was not a single state in America that voted for Donald Trump and then a Democrat or Hillary Clinton and a Republican for Senate. In 2018, you had, I think, 21 or 22 races with a gubernatorial and a Senate election, and 16 of those voted the same for each. And the other five were all incumbent Republican governors who voted for Democratic Senate candidates. You mentioned Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, Larry Hogan was elected. The one that's sort of the corollary was in Arizona, Doug Ducey, popular incumbent governor, won by double digits while Martha McSally lost by two points to Kirsten Cinema. Now, Kirsten Cinema, you know, she was not viewed as sort of left wing in the same way you look at, uh, you know, Raphael Warnock in, in Georgia. I mean, she was a better fit ideologically. Or, or Fetterman. Yeah, she was, she was able to, I think, win some, some independent votes. So it's going to be fascinating to see. Uh, how tribal we are, Josh, to your point, uh, you know, and, and have these gubernatorial been ra- races been nationalized and tribalized in the same way where it's like, we're, we're voting team red all the way down. Back to Pennsylvania, I'll just say real quickly, that debate to me, there, there are very few fo- undecided voters in the polls, according to what we've seen in Pennsylvania, 4%, 5%. That race was already tight. It was already sort of tightening and trending Republican over the last couple of, of weeks and I'm not sure that there's anybody who watched that debate and said, came away from that saying, yeah, I'm, I'm voting for Fetterman. I mean, it definitely hurt him. And the question is just how much. And I'm one of the ones in retrospect, I said, you know what? I think he shouldn't have debated. I think I think it would have at least left his, you know, from a, from a Democratic perspective, it at least would have left his health sort of an open question. It's not an open question anymore. It's, you know, it's, it's a resolved issue right now. Everybody knows it now. And so it's going to be tougher. Um, for him to win. Andy, can I make two very quick points about what Tom just said in Pennsylvania? Yeah. Um, Tom, I I appreciate uh, what you're saying. Tactically, maybe it was a mistake to debate, but he's a Democrat. Democrats are supposed to be in favor of debate. I get it. I mean, I'm not, yeah. You know, that's, it's kind of, it's kind of cynical for them to say we shouldn't have debated. Okay. (laughs) The second thing I'll say is it's a real argument against early voting. I, I, Mm. I've seen, I, what's the estimate? Half a million people in Pennsylvania. 600,000, I think I saw, yeah. If you saw that debate and you were an undecided independent voter who finally decided, well, you know, I don't really like Fetterman or Oz, but at least Fetterman lives in the state. At least he's a Pennsylvanian. I'll vote for him. After you saw that debate, you'd want to call the county clerk and get your ballot back. You'd say, wait a minute. He can't. He's not even able to serve. What's going to happen? Carl, if you were truly an undecided voter, you wouldn't be rushing out to vote early, right? I mean, those are the those yeah. are the partisans, I think, that are really... You know, I mean, maybe there's a couple of people that are like, maybe I was going to Florida to golf <laughs> yeah. with Trump. Okay. Right? Well, I, 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 agree, I agree with both of you guys. I, I've been <laughs> I've written columns uh, decrying the length of early voting uh, over at National Journal when I was over there, because for this very reason that you should not have early voting start until the last debate takes place. I, I think if you want people to pay attention to the races, if you want to reduce 
partisanship and tribalism, then you shouldn't have a month or more of early voting. You should maybe have, you know, a weekend or maybe a week of, of early voting. But the extent to which we do it now, I think, is a little uh, problematic. Um, but I also agree with Tom that, you know, probably most of these early voters are, are probably folks who are going to vote Democratic. They're mostly Democratic voters these days, and they're probably the more, more partisan voters anyway. So, um, you know, it probably doesn't make a huge, huge impact. All right. We want to move on. But just before we go, I just want to say that three cheers from my point of view for these debates. I'm worried about the decline in the number of debates and the idea that debates would become optional. I think they're an important part of the democratic process. And that's my good government pitch as we move on to the Gen Z voters. Carl, uh, your friend, John Della Volpe, he's got a new poll uh, up at the Institute of Politics at Harvard. He says for the third election cycle in a row, people 18 to 29 are prepared to come out at record or near record numbers. Um, survey found that four in 10 now say they will definitely vote this year. And uh, here's what John said, uh, John Del Volpe said, from looking at all the other national polling, I don't know if we're going to see a red wave. I don't know if we're going to see a blue wave. But we will see a Gen Z wave. That I am confident about. Uh, Carl, what do you make of John's poll? And is Gen Z coming out? And if so, what does it matter? Well, it matters. Uh, it matters in this election, maybe. And it certainly matters in future elections. We talk a lot about demographics and usually we talk race and gender. But age is, uh, if you have a generation of people who come up and just vote Democratic, uh, you know, by two to one, because cultural issues, they think climate change is the biggest you know, threat to the planet and the history of the planet, you know, what, whatever. Gen Z and millennials put together are now more than baby boomers, uh, and it's a big cohort. Uh, when people say they don't vote, what they mean is they don't vote quite as high a percentage as their elders, or, but they do vote. A lot of millions of them will vote. The, one of the reasons I've been hedging my predictions and bets, I mean, first of all, I always do that. But secondly, in all these podcasts we've been doing all autumn and even in the summer is because of this youth vote. I think it's potent and I think it's uh, a secret weapon for the Democrats. So I'm with John DeLavope on that. I gave a talk earlier this week in Dallas and somebody asked me about it. And I said, well, you know, in a sense, the Democratic Party has all of these fundamentals against them, the economy, people's rating of the view of the president, the midterm curse, all of these factors working against the Democrats. And it's this party of octogenarians, you know, uh, Joe Biden's going to be 80 uh, in a few days. Chuck Schumer is going to be 72. Schumer's the youngest one. Pelosi is eight, in her 80s. Uh, Steny Hoyer's in his 80s. The whole Clyburn, the whole leadership of this party are octogenarians. And one of the great paradoxes and one of the great interesting storylines is whether the youngest voters will save the party of the octogenarians. We'll find that out in about 10 days. Well, Josh, Politico uh, had a piece this week saying that, uh, at least in early voting, Gen Z aren't showing up in big numbers. Um, I mean, do you buy this sort of Gen Z wave idea? Um, yeah, I'm skeptical. Historically, young voters don't show up, especially for midterm elections. Uh, if you look at the polling, especially, I mean, Roe v. Wade being overturned, I think is a wild card and, and may spur some some younger voters, especially more progressive voters to get engaged. But, you know, look at if you look at the polling from uh, much of the year, it's the young voters that are dissatisfied with the Democratic Party. It's they're, they're dissatisfied with President Biden, even though they voted for him in large numbers in 2020. And to me, that's a, a clear signal that they're, they're they're not eager to vote Republican. They're not Republican voters. They just are just disillusioned Democratic voters, many of them progressives. And I, I just think that's a formula for staying home and, and not, not participating. 
in the midterm elections. That's what usually happens, by the way, historically speaking. Um, young, even in 2018, which was a big Dem year, big, big year for that anti-Trump coalition, uh, young voters still didn't show up in huge numbers. Uh, older voters were the, were the core of the turnout. So, yeah, I mean, it would, t- it would, it would break historical precedent. And I, I just think the reality of where younger voters are in, in relation to the Biden uh, administration, they're not excited and they're not enthused. And I don't think there's a lot of evidence that they're, they're showing up in, 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 in big numbers. Tom, what do you think? I get to break the tie? Yeah. All right. <laughs> I'm with Josh. I mean, listen, sorry, Carl. <clears throat> I know you love De La Volpe and I love him too, but John spent his entire career studying the youth vote and, and you know, wrote a book about it after the election. I mean, he's sort of invested in this idea that the youth vote, he's kind of like the Pied Piper of, of the youth vote a little bit. So I think he wants them to turn out and believes that they will. But I mean, to Josh's point, you go back and look, and this was clear from early on. It was one of the most shocking things is that Young voters, the youngest voters, 25 to 34, 18 to 25, 18 to 34, depending on how the pollster looked at it, gave Biden his lowest approval ratings of any demographic. They have been pretty sour on him from the beginning. And whether that's because they don't think he's being progressive enough or whether they they don't, you know, they think they're upset with the economy. I mean, it's hard to tell exactly, you know, and, and really figure out exactly why they're so dissatisfied, but they are. I mean, it's kind of clear. And so that's a recipe for uh, them not being turning out at historic rates this year. So I'm I'm pretty skeptical that that's going to be the case. Well, can we go back to one thing Josh said, though, about 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 the Dobbs case? Josh, because um, we're not just talking about Gen Zers. We're also millennials also voted heavily for Biden. Uh, Josh, you're a millennial, right? I am at the I'm on the border between I'm a, what they call a geriatric millennial, I think. <laughs> I see. Right? All right. I'm, I'm, I'm 1981. But yeah, I'll, you can put me in the mix. But no millennial has any recollection of a world without Roe v. Wade. I mean, this was decided in the early 70s. So the idea that the Dobbs decision is a shock to young voters, that is not a surprise to me. And, and does it have the ch- I guess I'll throw I'll ask you and does it have the chance to change this equation and and, and uh, you know be a form of a November surprise? Yeah, I think it has a chance. Uh, the the Politico story that you guys were talking about, uh, where, where they quoted folks looking at the early voting data, suggested that they haven't seen the the, the early engagement um, among younger voters. But that could change. People, you know, they could certainly vote on election day. So we'll we'll see what happens. But. You know, I think there's so many other issues that young young voters also care about, whether it's their economic future, whether it's, you know, the safety of their communities. I mean, that's what we're seeing writ large. And I don't think younger voters are immune to, to, to those challenges, um, and especially with the economy, with, with, you know, getting a college degree, maybe dealing with, um, you know, I think the student loan debt uh, forgiveness that Biden did, that was deliberately geared towards these voters because they wanted to show they could deliver for, for some of these folks and get them to show up in the in the midterm elections. But again, like, I'll believe it when I see it, right? I'm, we're still not seeing a whole lot of data or evidence that um, there is a sea change or a significant engagement from from, from these Gen, Gen Z voters. Okay, well, let's talk about the World Series for a minute, Carl, Tom, Josh. Predictions? What do you think? I want Dusty Baker to win a World Series, so um, and I hate the Phillies, so it's an easy call. I, I'm not. A, I never was as a big Astros hater as, as some folks, but um, Dusty Baker getting to be the manager. Uh, you know, I'm, 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 he's been to so many World Series. He's been around uh, so long and has done so well with so many different teams. I hope this is the the year for Dusty Baker. Yeah, that's my view too. Dusty, he's a sac- he played ball in Sacramento. It's where I'm from. I've always followed his career. The Giants didn't get him. He went to the Dodgers, which was a sore point. But he's as a manager, 
I think I'm right about this. He's the only manager in uh, Major League history who's won 2,000 games who's not in the Hall of Fame. And if Dusty takes this bunch who just, you know, two years ago were all derided as cheaters. and Because uh, they were. There's a couple of people. <laughs> well, there's a couple of people still on that team. Uh, and they are. Who, who said, you know, who, basically their defense was, look, we're good. We did this. We shouldn't have. But you, we'll show you how good we are. And, and they're not going to cheat with Dusty in the in the dugout. So my point is, if the Astros win, they have to put Dusty Baker in the Hall of Fame. So I'm pulling for Houston. Tom? Can't root for cheaters. Can't do it. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, listen, I, the Phillies are clearly the underdogs. I think they won, what, n- like 19 games less than, than the Astros. Um, you know, Bryce Harper's going to get his shot. I'm a, you know, we follow the Cubs here. I'm a Schwarber guy. He's in fuego. He's hitting the ball so damn far. It's ridiculous. So um, I want, you know, I got to root for the Phillies. I really, other than the fact the Astros beat my Mariners, that which was kind of painful. We had that game. We had we should have won that series. Actually, we had a couple like they ripped our heart out in that first game. So, but yeah, Phillies. How about you, Andy? Yeah, I think the Phillies. You got to root for the underdog in these things. So uh, let's leave it there. I want to thank Josh Kroshauer, Carl Cannon, and Tom Bevan for joining me today. We're usually here Tuesdays, Thursdays, and Fridays in some form. So bookmark this podcast. Check back often. As ever, I urge you to go to Real Clear Politics. Read one article from a writer or publication with whom you disagree. That might be helpful if you're a Gen Z voter this weekend or if you're spending time with a Gen Z voter, as I will be over the weekend. Thank you for listening. Until next time, for Real Clear Politics, I'm Andrew Walworth.